The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now I want to call your attention once again to God's Word, to Romans chapter 12, and I'd like to read this entire chapter today as preliminary to the sermon in just a few minutes. Uh, it's good for us to establish the context of, of the sermon that we're going to deliver in just a few minutes. So if you look in your Bibles at Romans chapter 12, we begin reading in verse number 1. This is familiar to you, these first two verses especially. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. For the past four weeks, our time together in God's word has centered in the biblical doctrine of unity in the church. The subject is the unity of believers, and originally I hadn't intended that we would turn this into a series, but 
as I got more into this subject, uh, I felt that there were several areas that I wanted to cover. And so now we have a series with this being the fifth and the final message. The last two messages had doctrinal unity as their theme. And we learned that the core essential doctrines of the faith must be agreed upon by the membership or else we have no hope that the church will be unified. If the Bible is our rule of faith and practice, and if it is the foundation of the church, then of course, of course, we must agree on its doctrine. But as we've noted in those messages, most churches dismiss doctrine because disagreement on doctrine is divisive. Uh, it's rare to hear a clear, definitive statement about core beliefs. And in many cases in, in churches, a person doesn't even need to be a Christian to be a part of the fellowship of the church. And I think this may be the reason that we see fewer denominational churches and the reason that many of them change their names. And this is because they don't want to be identified with certain doctrinal markers that bind them to, to rigid doctrinal standards. And all of this is to say that the Bible offends people. And so they want to get rid of the Bible. Well, we don't have any plans to change. We are a church that believes the Bible is the rock on which we stand. The Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and he is the rock of our faith. Well, today I'll finish this uh, series on unity uh, with practical advice for church members that demonstrates how we are to act and how we can work together as a unified body serving our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text today is Romans chapter 5. Uh, a few weeks ago, we studied the first two verses of this chapter, in which Paul had just finished 11 masterful chapters explaining some of the deepest doctrines of the faith. And now, as is his custom, he moves into practical considerations of the doctrine. In other words, how does this doctrine that he's taught, how does that affect us? Now, a few minutes ago, we read the entire chapter, and that was to familiarize you with the context of these verses. Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 14 to 16. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Now, as you look at this text and then at the surrounding verses, you can see that Paul speaks of diversity in the church. In the fourth verse, he says that we have many members in the body of Christ, and not all members are fitted for the same office. In the sixth verse, he says that we have different gifts according to the way that the grace of God works in us. And in the middle of this, in verse number five, he emphasizes that although we are diverse in gifts, we are one unified body in Christ. And then from there, he moves on into a discussion of how we are to treat each other. And I especially like verse number 10 that says that we are to be affectionate with each other. The ESV translates the last part of this verse as outdo one another in showing honor. Well, Paul has 
many statements in this chapter about fostering good relationships that will cement us to each other. And this comes after long doctrinal dissertations on our natural depravity, about justification by faith. Then he gets into the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And then sprinkled in among this, there are mentions of these great doctrines of predestination and of effectual calling and the preservation of our salvation and also our glorification with Christ. And so then we come to chapter 12 and Paul settles down from this theologically difficult doctrine and he begins to talk about what this doctrine should do, uh, how it should work in a practical way for the believer. And I think he knows that we'll not understand all of these previous teachings without a great deal of intense study. And so he eases up a bit and shows these practical applications that, that will be the inevitable consequences of knowing this doctrine. And so essentially what he says is this. Since God has done all these marvelous things, here is how it should affect your everyday life. And this is how you should act because of it. Now, if we don't respect the need to know his doctrine, then neither will we be able to apply the consequences of the doctrine. So simply put, you'll never be a good Christian without rigidly sticking to the doctrines of the Christian faith. And you'll not be a good Christian if your church is afraid of doctrine, if it muddies the water and obscures it and does that with name changes and will not rightly divide the word of truth, then you're not going to be a good Christian. Truth separates us from those that are in error, and we desire no unity with error. Well, in this text, we're breaking into a discussion of these practical applications of previous doctrine. There are five chapters of this, and we're just getting a small part of this in these four text verses. Now, I want to show you these verses today and take from them five special characteristics of our unity in our relationships with each other. Now, I hope that this will whet your appetite for some additional study and you can go on to the other chapters that follow and perhaps you would do your own series on the need for unity. So how are we to interact with the world? How do we act with other Christians that are in our church? These verses give insight. Now, first, I want you to notice from this text what we do about facing adversity. That's first, facing adversity. Now, I remind you that, that Paul was a teacher of the Christian faith. His letters are an exposition of the doctrines of Christ. And in his letters, he enlarges on themes that Jesus taught. Now, occasionally he will mention some things that Jesus never addressed, but we are assured that his words are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so what he writes is no different than if Jesus spoke these words himself. Some, though, would like to pit Paul against Jesus, but that's impossible because of the doctrines of the inspiration and the infallibility of Scripture. Paul had much to say about the way that we live and the way that we are to live is contrary to this culture. We have a different worldview because we've been called out of this world of darkness into the kingdom of light. Now, if we hold Paul's positions on the way that we are to live, we're in for much trouble, especially if we want to hold the line on what the Bible says about immorality. 
and what it has to say about sexual perversion. In this day and age, believing what the Bible says about these things puts us in the in the road of much criticism. Either we believe the Bible, though, and we stand by the righteous demands that are found in the Ten Commandments and the explanation of those in the rest of Scripture, we either do that or we reject the Bible as our authority. And so what most, most churches will do is to reject the Scriptures because they want to get along. And so these churches will change morality to fit the culture rather than using the Bible to mold the culture to the teachings of Christ and the apostles. Bible doctrine will change people to godliness while turning away from the rigidity of the Bible uh, leaves people dead in trespasses and sin. But one of Christ's chief warnings to his disciples was about constant adversity they would face because of their faith. Now, he said that the Christian life will not be easy and that no follower of his should expect that it will be easy. And so we asked the question, if you didn't know, if you're a Christian, you already do know. But if you didn't know, you'd say, well, why isn't the Christian life easy? Well, the easy answer is because it's countercultural. True Christianity cuts across the grain of this world's culture. I've talked with many of our members of the church that agonize because they can't mention uh, God or the church in the workplace. One person told me that to mention God was considered hate speech. Now, there's much opposition and it comes from every quarter. And if, if it's not being opposed by just the God haters that we work with, often we are opposed by those that we love the most. In Matthew 10, Jesus said, your father, your mother, your wife, your husband, your children, anyone that is unsaved that you know is a potential adversary and they will not appreciate the time and the effort that you spend trying to serve Christ. Jesus said, you won't have peace with them because of him. Now, as a personal note, I, I'm sad to say that my grandmother on my mother's side was an unbeliever. She and my grandfather didn't want to hear about faith in Christ. And so when I was a child, we would visit them in Kansas. And my dad would always talk to them while we were there about trusting Christ. And the resentment was so strong that tension was felt every time that we visited. And I honestly believe they preferred that we didn't come. Now, the first thing that I can tell you is that, according to Jesus, this shouldn't be a surprise. You're not experiencing a deficient type of Christianity because you have trouble at work or you have trouble in your home. You might think that something has gone terribly wrong, but it hasn't. It, things have gone expectedly right. And you are in the middle of what Jesus said would happen. And what you must learn is that he can show you how to deal with it. I was counseling with a man about this issue. Uh, he had troubles at home with his wife and he mistakenly thought, oh, if I come to church and if I become a Christian and if I follow Jesus Christ and all of my troubles will vanish. And I told him not to expect it. It's not unusual that troubles don't go away. Most likely the troubles will intensify. More is heaped on. And so the closer that you get to Christ, the further you are from peace with unbelievers. God never 
promises peace with the world, but he promises he will give you inner peace to deal with the world. The solution to it, though, is never to abandon Christ, to achieve peace. It's to trust him and to rely upon him to bring peace in your struggles. Now, you'll notice what Paul says in verse number 14. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Now, this is a comment about your reaction to opposition. Now, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we would ask the question, do Jesus and Paul agree? Well, Romans chapter 12, 14 is a summary of Jesus' teachings on this same subject in Matthew 5. In verses 44 and 45 of Matthew 5, Jesus said, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. In this text, Jesus used himself and his Father as examples of how we are to treat those who oppose us. Now, God, who is the ruler of all, that is, of the just and of the unjust, makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain to replenish the entire earth for everyone. This is what theologians call common grace. That God is merciful even to those who hate him. He takes care of the world. He sustains physical life even for those who are God-haters. He gives them breath to breathe. He gives them their food to eat. And if he didn't, the entire world would perish in a flash. God expects us to treat those who oppose us, oppose us with no less courtesy and mercy than he does in his common grace. And we're to do this even though the world will do everything that it can to make our lives miserable. As badly as we despise the sin of homosexuality, we're not to mistreat them. We must never condone them. We must never support their ungodly, wicked, societal damage. But we're to love their souls and seek their salvation. Oh, yes, we do despise their actions. We despise that damage, but we don't hate their souls. In 1 Corinthians, we learn that God saved many of them out of that terrible sin. What a Christian must do is learn to be calm. We must be calm in our conflicts. We are to act prayerfully. We must stand our ground, but we must not have a spirit of retaliation. When Jesus taught on this in Matthew 5, he directly refuted the abuse of God's commandments by the Pharisees and others who believe that it was righteous to harm those that harmed them. They took the Old Testament command of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and they took that to mean it was an injunction that they could strike back. Now, the Bible does teach this. It does teach eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But their misapplication was that retaliation was acceptable for individuals when God was not talking about individuals. He was speaking about government responsibility of retributive justice. It's never God's way for us as individuals to take justice into our own hands. And you can see the horrific nature of that, the results of that, by rioting and looting and burning and destruction in our cities that we see going on in, in this summertime. 
This goes hand in hand with personal retaliation. And so you will face adversity from inside and outside. And you must learn to deal with that with a Christ-like spirit. Christ's example is described by Peter in 1 Peter 2, verse 23. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Now, this is as simple as leaving justice in God's hands. God's justice is perfect. Now, if we do it, we'll skew it with our prejudices. Now, if we're told to treat those outside of the church with love and compassion, then how much more should we be forbearing with those who we are in conflict at times inside the church? Now, as verse 10 says, we must outdo each other in showing honor. And if we do, would that not quiet our conflicts? Now, we notice in verse number 14 that there are two commands. The first is to bless. Bless is, here in this text, is the Greek word eulageo. Now, most of you are familiar with the term eulogy. Uh, the word eulogy comes from this same word, bless, eulageo. At a funeral, there is usually a eulogy. A eulogy is when you speak good things about a person. And so in a funeral, there's usually someone who gives a eulogy of the deceased. This is the way that Paul says that you should respond to the bitterness of persecution. You should eulogize. You should bless. You should reject cursing and turn that around and speak well of those who curse you. Now, I know that's hard to do. That's probably harder and more unnatural to our human spirit than anything we can do. In your mind, what you would prefer to do is to pound that person into the dust. And if you think that way, you might end up doing it. Scripture says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And if you don't pound him physically, then you do have that desire to try and do it verbally. But the Lord knows that there is something that is disarming about responding to bitterness with blessing. Your eulogy can strip a person of their hostility, and the Bible says that they will be ashamed of their treatment of you. Now, I know that it works this way. Uh, if you continue to be nice to those who aren't nice, most of the time they will change their attitude or they will go away because they know they're unsuccessful at getting under your skin. They can't fight a sweet spirit. Proverbs says that a soft answer turns away wrath and grievous words stir up strife. So that's the first command. Bless those that curse you. Give them a little eulogy. Now, the second command is don't curse them. And I hate to say this, but cursing is often a common reaction even among Christians. It may be common, but it's not spiritual. I don't care what it is. You don't have the right to curse anyone. And you might not know this, and this may seem a little odd, but when you curse someone, you're guilty of one of the greatest sins against God. Now, you might try to identify that by saying, well, you must be talking about the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And often in cursing, that is a commandment that's broken. But that's not the commandment that I'm speaking of. When you curse someone, it's a violation of the first commandment. 
Thou shalt have no other gods before me. When you curse someone, that is idolatry, because what you do is to put yourself in God's shoes and you take over God's work. You don't have the right to curse anyone, and that's what curse means, to damn anyone. You don't have the right to damn anyone. That's what it means. You can't damn anyone because God reserves judgment for himself. God takes vengeance, not you. God always says, if there is a problem, leave it to me. In my time, I will take care of it. Now, here in this chapter, in verse number 19, the apostle says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. So essentially, the message of Scripture is, leave it to God. What you're supposed to do is to treat people the way that Christ treated you. There is no one who is more opposed to him, to the way of Christ, than you. And that's the way we're all to think about ourselves. The Apostle Paul said that I am the chief of sinners. And, and if you really know your own heart, which you do, you, you would say the same thing. I am the chief of sinners. That's the way that we are to think of ourselves. And yet being the chief of sinners, God saved us. Now, if God treated you with mercy and kindness then what right do you have to treat others differently? And this is what you do when you face adversity. You bless instead of berating. Outdo others in honor. Now, the second lesson that we learn in this text about unity and getting along with others, number two, is expressing empathy. Expressing empathy. This is verse 15. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Empathy is about being sensitive to the feelings of others. And I must say that I appreciate people that are sensitive to the joys and the hurts of others. I struggle with this because I lean more to the side of sympathy rather than empathy. Now, I don't know if you understand the difference, but sympathy is when you feel sorry for someone while empathy is when you feel sorrow with someone. And that's what makes the church such a special place. Christ wants us to be such a close-knit body that we feel sorrow with others, not just for others. And if you think about it, how is it possible that uh, we could be a body without empathy? How can you have a body that one part is isolated and the other parts don't share with the pains that the other parts are going through. Now, I remember as a child, I did this so many times that I can't count. Uh, I'm running down the sidewalk, and I'm barefoot, and my big toe folds under as I run, and the concrete scrapes my toe, tears off the end, and leaves it a bloody mess. Well, I didn't look at that toe and say, well, you know something? I've got nine other toes, so this is not really a problem. No, nobody does that. Uh, as a child, what I would do is run into the house crying to mom as if both of my feet were cut off. See, my whole body was in anguish because of that toe. The rest of the body didn't have sympathy for it. The body felt empathy. The whole body looks at that toe and says, hey, buddy, that hurts all of us. We feel your pain. And that's the way a body works. 
Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians 12:26, and maybe he was inspired by a stubbed toe when he wrote, and whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. And this is the same idea that we find in Romans 12:15. Rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. Well, we might think that it's much easier to rejoice with people than it is to weep with them. But that's not always the case. Human nature is inherently selfish. Most of us struggle with envy and jealousy. So if you tell me that you're going on a vacation around the world, it's harder for me to say, well, I hope you have a great time, than to say, I hope your car breaks down on the way to the airport. That's selfish human nature. And it goes against hoping for the best for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So often, yes, we do weep better than we rejoice. Now, we take this back to the analogy of the body. Your hands are not as sensitive as your eyes. Your hands will not say to your body, well, you know, I've got all this work to do. And, and I get dirty all day long. Uh, but those eyes, this, this guy is really sensitive to his eyes. He puts drops in his eyes. He takes care of them. But I can't even get a drop of corn huskers on these cracked hands. Therefore, I shall poke myself in the eye. Well, that's beyond stupid. But it's no more stupid than a Christian who's jealous over another part of the church body and would like to stick a finger in the eye, so to speak. See, we are members of the same body. And so when one member does well, all of us should rejoice. We praise God because of their prosperity. As a pastor, I love to see you prosper because I know you're all good Christians. And if God prospers you, then I know the church will prosper. I know the whole church will benefit because you'll give. And so the church can do more for Christ. Now, on the other side of that is the weeping. When there is sorrow in your family, when you cry, you have a body of Christians in the church that will cry with you. At least that's what we should do, shouldn't we? Someone said that people you meet are just acquaintances until you cry with them. You don't have a real friend until you've had them cry with you. Jesus was like that. Came to the tomb of Lazarus and the Bible says that he wept. Well, did he weep because of Lazarus? No. He knew that in just a few minutes he would raise Lazarus from the dead and Lazarus would walk out of the tomb. But he wept because he saw the heartache of his sisters, Mary and Martha, and the heartache of his friends. He saw them weeping with their friends and with compassion. He empathized with them and he also wept. Their pain was his pain. Their sorrows were his sorrows. That's empathy. Well, now we see in the passage, helpful advice, number three, is living in harmony. Living in harmony. In verse 16, the first part, be of the same mind one toward another. Harmony is about as basic as it gets when we talk about unity. The way for everybody to be in harmony with each other is for everybody to be in harmony with Jesus. There's a mathematical axiom that says if A equals C and B equals C, then A equals B. And the point of that axiom is that if two things are equal to the same thing, then they are equal to each other. 
when we're all in harmony with Christ, we will all be in harmony with each other. Uh, the important thing, though, is to start out with Christ as the standard. And if all of us are in harmony with the standard, then we will be in the right kind of harmony with each other. Now, some might say, well, Pastor Smith, I want, I want to be just like you. I'd like to be like you. And, of course, that would make you highly intelligent. That makes sense. You'd want to be like me. Well, let's suppose that this is what you do. You make me the standard. And I've got this strange little quirk. And I've got this little vice that I can't get rid of. Well, if you're just like me, and all of you are just like me, then we, you all have this strange little quirk, and we all have a vice, a little vice that we can't get rid of. And this is the reason that Paul was careful to say in 1 Corinthians 11, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now, what he did there is to set Christ as the standard, and he said, You can follow me as I follow Christ. Don't follow me if I'm not following Christ. Now, if you're in harmony with me, he says, and I'm following Christ, then you will be in harmony with Christ. Now, the problem with many cults and preacher worshipers is they get, get their eyes off the standard and they follow the leader beyond Christ or short of Christ and not as Christ. And so you must make sure that the leader is following Christ in everything. Keep your eyes on Christ and then we'll be in harmony with each other. Well, the practicality of this as members of the same church is that when one of the members in the church wanders off into sin, then that upsets the balance. That upsets the harmony. There's dissonance, not harmony. And so what we have to do sometimes is to practice discipline in the church because dissonance is division. And division is the most dangerous condition that a church can be in. Jesus said that a house that is divided against itself can't stand. Amos wrote, can two walk together except they be agreed? And that's a rhetorical question. We know the answer to this. The answer is self-evident. To walk together, we must agree. We must harmonize or we grate on each other like fingernails across a chalkboard. Now, let me inject the word of caution. The word here is harmony. It's harmony. It's not to be identical. And I want to explain that. We don't want to be without personal diversities because identical people are a cult. This is a reason why we don't preach legalism because we're not the cult of Berean Baptist Church. I'm not the cookie cutter and you're not the cookies that are cut into the Berean mold. Oh, there's harmony. There's some latitude in Christianity. There's room for us to be different and yet remain in harmony. Now, of course, I'm not speaking here about being different in essential doctrines. We've already covered that. But this is about being different people. On the piano, there is a key that's called middle C. And if I play C, E, and G, then I have a chord in harmony. If I play C, D, and E... I have dissonance, and I don't want D in there because that ruins harmony. So I can be different, but only within the bounds of what harmonizes with Jesus. Does that make sense? If you don't understand, you can ask Melissa and the music crew to explain that to you. Now, unfortunately, though, in the church, there are some of us that are playing Beethoven and others are playing rap. And that's a problem. 
Not everything in the church harmonizes. And this is the reason that we need to stick to the Bible to find our unity. It always plays the right tune. Now, fourthly, in this passage, we learn about acting with courtesy. Again, in verse 16, mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Now, one of the things that I like about Berean is cultural diversity. I grew up in the South. This was a long time ago, and I grew up without cultural diversity. In my childhood, I was only around white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, or I, I, I might adjust that a little bit to white Anglo-Saxon Baptist. I'd never met any Hispanics. I didn't know any Asians. I never saw a Filipino. There were none of those that were in my school. And I've told this story before about how that when I was in the fifth grade, they started school busing under the Civil Rights Act. And I had never to that time had a black kid in my class. But school desegregation came along in the fifth grade. They started busing children. And I remember the first black kid that I ever knew. His name was Rodney. And I learned that although Rodney had different skin, he wasn't really a different kid. We became friends. But there was one thing that I didn't like about Rodney. Until he came to my school, I was the fastest kid in the school by a long way. I was always the first one that was chosen for kickball. And still today, you can tell that's the way it should be by my athletic frame. But anyway, Rodney came to school and, and he challenged the king of the hill. Now, I could still outrun Rodney, but he pushed me. He pushed me to my limits, and, and I had to concentrate and to work harder to beat him. But I also learned something else about Rodney. He was out of his element. He was uncomfortable. In those days, school desegregation was a token thing. And so what they would do, they would bust just enough black kids to comply. And so Rodney was the only black kid in my class. And so he was put in an uncomfortable position. Now, I was a Christian, and I became Rodney's friend. He needed a friend, and so I was his friend. But I wasn't some, some great person who was championing equality and rights of all people. I was just nine or ten years old and a Christian with the understanding that it's not right to mistreat people. The law of Christian courtesy teaches us to be kind to everyone. And so I couldn't in good conscience mistreat him, although nearly the entire town was mad about desegregation. Historians tell us that one of the things that contributed to the decline of the Roman Empire was the influence of Christian attitudes. Christianity teaches us not to be class conscious, not to be racially conscious. The Christian church was made up of only a few nobles, some men like Philemon, but many, many more ignoble, like those, uh, like Onesimus the slave. In church, there is no nobility and there are no slaves. Well, the only slaves there are are the slaves to Christ. And that makes none of us any better than any other. This is, this is one of the reasons I despise the idea of pastoring like nobility, where the pastor becomes the Lord of the church. But in this church, we have no room for a spiritual aristocracy. There's no room for spiritual snobbery. 
And so you can't be a member of this church and say, well, there are certain types of people that we don't want to be members of our church. Now, of course, I'm not speaking of those who are immoral. I mean, when we talk about the color of the skin or the nationality or or the ethnicity or someone's economy. And so whether it's rich or poor or black or white, Hispanic or Asian, there is no distinction among God's people. We can read James chapter two on this. Read that when you get home. None of us is any better than anyone else. As it's been so often said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Christian courtesy means treating everyone in the same way. Well, finally, in this text, there is a lesson about accepting humility. Number five is accepting humility. The last phrase of verse 16 says, be not wise in your own conceits. The biggest mistake that you can make is to think that you're somebody. You look at your skin and you ask, well, where did you come from? Every one of us came from a pile of dust. Listen to Paul in Galatians 6, verse 3. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Now, Paul was writing there concerning sin. If you think that you are a better Christian than someone else and you pat yourself on the back for it, stop a minute to consider who you are. Where did you come from? Now, we're a church that believes the Bible. We believe that we were made by God who formed us out of the dust of the ground. And someday this body will return to dust. We also teach that morally we're totally depraved and we're totally Unable to make anything of ourselves that's pleasing to God. Paul wrote to bragging Corinthians. He said, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it at the hand of someone else, then why do you boast as if it came from you? In other words, you didn't make you what you are. God did. By the grace of God, you live and breathe. Now, in verse number three of Romans 12. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. In the song we sang a few minutes ago, all I have is Christ. There, there's one verse that says the strength I have to follow your commands could never come from me. But oh, my goodness, we're living in the age of self-esteem. This is the age of me, me, me. Look what I do. And churches today cater to people that are stuck on themselves. And so the new theology is the theology of self-worship. Self is our God. There was a young lady that went to her pastor. and She said, Pastor, I have this besetting sin. I need your help. I come to church every Sunday and I can't help but think that I am the most beautiful girl in the congregation. Now, I know that's pride and conceit, but I can't help it. So I need you to pray for me and help me. And the pastor said, well, Mary, you don't really need to worry about it. In your case, it's not sin. You've just made a horrible mistake. Don't think of yourself better than others. Here's good advice we have from Philippians Two, verse number three, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. 
Peter said that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And so he wrote, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Well, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 14, here is a place where we see Jesus in his skillful use of illustrations gave the same practical advice that we get from Paul. In Luke 14, beginning in verse number 8, Jesus says, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room. And when he that bade thee cometh, he may send to thee, friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sat, that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Proverbs 25, verse 6 says, Put not forth thyself in the presence of the king, and stand not in the place of great men. Now, if I had written the Proverbs, I would have phrased it differently. I would have said, don't toot your own horn. Now, does this mean that you're worthless? Is that what we're trying to teach? Does this mean you can't have any self-esteem? No, it means that whatever, whatever you are comes from Christ. And so it means to esteem yourself in Christ. You are what you are because of him. I love our song that says, two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fix, my ransom paid at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Now, after Paul wrote Philippians 2, verse 3, he explained how that Jesus, the King of glory, stepped down from his highest place in heaven and he gave up that glory to come to this earth to come in the form of man. Now, do you understand what he did? He came in the frailty of human flesh. So even the Son of God humbled himself. If you are in Christ and others are in Christ, then you are as others. You can't be better. Now, we need to remember this. A person who is a Christian for five minutes is as ready for heaven by the sanctifying grace of God as one who's been a Christian for 50 years. You see, our value is fixed by the ransom that was paid at the cross, not because of anything we are or anything we can do. This understanding comes only from knowing doctrine, from knowing the theology of Christ and the true anthropology of man. We can't dismiss this and hope that we will be the church that Christ built. So we have practical advice from Paul about our relationships with others, adversity, empathy, harmony, courtesy, humility. What do we do with all these? And we learn to live in the right relationship in these areas. And when we do, there will always be unity within the body of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for your mercy and your grace. Thanking you for what we are and what we can be and what we will be 
only through Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of our souls. As we look back over these past few weeks of speaking of unity in the church, it's difficult for us to exercise this because we're not in the church. We're not here meeting with one another. We're a body of Christ that that is scattered for the time being. We can't assemble. So the unity that we seek is not easily found. But Lord, we, we pray that the lessons are learned, that when we when we get back together, that we will be unified in everything that we do. And even right now, we're preparing ourselves for that as we have the sympathy, the empathy, we have the courtesy, we have all these Christian graces that we've just mentioned present in our in our lives right now so that we help others that are in our church and others who need the grace of God in their lives. Lord, we, we thank you for our church. We do pray for our leaders and we pray that they make the right decisions and we pray very, very soon that we'll be back together and we can practice as a church the the things that you've taught us in your word. Lord, thank you for this and thank you for this this opportunity that we have to bring the word of God to your people. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. And now I'd like to give you a final word of benediction for today. Uh, This comes from Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And here the Apostle Paul says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Good advice for all of us as God's people as we wait to come back together again. Go with God and be safe. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California. 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.